and we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for a time to gather together just as we are. Lord, whether we know it or not, um, we, are, we are gathering by your will. We're gathering in your name. Uh, I know that we all come into this place kind of in different parts of our journey and different kind of places of understanding and belief and conviction. And we just pray that right now, Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the power of your truth, Lord, that right now our hearts and our minds, Lord, would be, would be changed, would be transformed, would be invigorated, Lord, to a life that is that is at peace, and also a life that is full of purpose. And Lord, it's a purpose that is far greater than ourselves, that extends beyond just what we achieve into what you achieve. And Lord, that our life is actually just an opportunity to live out and shine what you have done in us through Christ. So Lord, it's all about you. Lord, we do all for your glory. I pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted high and no other name. So Lord, give us unity as your church. I pray uh, for those in here that, uh, that, that are seeking, that are, that are you know, still uh, skeptical and maybe doubting or just don't believe. I pray that this would be um, an encouraging, um, helpful word and, and possibly even life-changing. All in Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 1. Um, we, we teach, typically we teach through books of the Bible. We take a break in the summer to do to do more of a topical-driven um, teaching. Um, but but last, this time last year, we started Romans, and, it, and we went through uh, Romans 8 up through May, and now we're picking back up into Romans. Uh, and today, I kind of want us to review. So just real quickly, to get, while you're opening up your Bibles to Romans 1, um, and I, I would just encourage you today maybe just to follow along with the screens because we're going to be kind of hopscotching through Romans, um, and it might just be easiest to keep up that way, um, but, but also, if you're up for the challenge, feel free to follow along. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at all, please take one of these that are near you um, under the t- chair, and we would love for that to be our gift to you. Um, but just to kind of give you an, a, kind of the, the, the lay of the land, the background of what we're reading, um, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but real quickly, this, this, book, this book of the Bible is actually a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the, to the people of Christ in Rome, the church in Rome, kind of all the church in Rome. And they weren't all in one place. They were kind of scattered about, but it was meant to be for their encouragement. And so it's a lot more of a pastoral letter. It's a letter of him giving pastoral shepherding leadership uh, to this church. Paul has never been to Rome. He's actually never been there, but he's got a lot of relationships there. He's got a lot of influence there. Probably some that he discipled, raised up, have gone there. So you see throughout this letter a deep affection for Rome. He's writing this letter to the church in Rome because of a disunity that has come up. And it was caused by the differences kind of in cultural and traditional um, kind of ways between the Jews and the Gentiles. And just so you know, those categories, Jews is one category. It's all those that were the people of Israel, uh, the, the kind of the Old Testament people that, that we read. They were the, the Jewish people. Gentiles is just everybody else. That's the two categories. So it's, it's everybody, but in our understanding, it's those of the, gent- the, the Jewish background and the Gentiles. And so that's, that's the two categories that exist in this framework. And what had happened is that the Jewish Christians that were living in Rome had been exiled from Rome. And they had been forced to live outside of Rome for five years. But the church went on while they were gone. And then when they, when they were allowed to come back in, the church that they knew looked very different. It was very un-Jewish. 
And so there was this disunity of, of this kind of conflict, and the Greek Christians emphasized the experiential freedom of grace and their salvation, while the Jews still wanted their tradition to be the way in which they lived out their salvation. And so there, there seemed to be this discord, there seemed to be this oil and water that you can't do both. And so this is what Paul is writing, and he's saying, hey, Guess what? There can be unity because your unity is in Christ. And that's a, that's a big motivation of this letter. Um, real quickly, Romans, if, you, if you've ever tried to spend any time in it, you, you know and maybe recognize that it's deeply theological. Um, it, it, you know, it kind of, the way that it that forms thought, it, it's not something you can read fast. And the things that it addresses, it's just deep. And the way that it addresses it, addresses it, it, um, it kind of deconstructs and builds. And so it's not just like a, you know, a, a sugar stick that you just go and, and look and get satisfied. Like it takes, but it, you know, it's, 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 it's meaty. It, it You've got to chew it up and it takes a while to digest. So while it's deeply the- theological though, it's also deeply personal. It truly is, and and you know I've been I've been a believer, I've been a Christ follower since I was in seventh grade. I've been doing ministry since I was nineteen. Um, uh, I've studied Romans a lot. I've been under teaching in of Romans a lot. I've even taught parts of Romans a lot, but I have never taught from beginning to end through Romans. And and I tell you, coming into it, and still, it's very intimidating. It's very, because again, it's deeply theological. And, and it was like, I don't, I mean, like, I don't, I'm not smart enough to do this. But yet, which a theme that's been all throughout ministry and anyone that's been a part of leading and planting the bridge, we are all doing things that are way above our pay grade, way above our wisdom and knowledge. And, and once and over and over again, God says, hey, I've equipped you today to do what I've called you to do today. And so I've kind of been walking in that trust. So it's intimidating. And over and over again, I've dreaded sections like what we went through back in the fall last year of 118 through 320, where I just had to talk about the wrath of God for like six weeks. And I was like, when I was getting to it, I was like, uh, can't I just like talk about the, the revelation of, of, of the gospel and the beauty of it and then like jump, you know, kind of go through this in one take? And but it was like six weeks and, and I was dreading it. But I mean, truly, every week, every single week, it, it, was, it was a kindness of God for us to understand because when we understand the full message of Romans, which is the full message of the gospel, we see that it's beautiful. And so I have actually really enjoyed it. It's been difficult but beautiful. Uh, because of this, we know that it's worth our time and effort and our discomfort. Um, where We are not. This is why we do uh, expositional teaching through books of the Bible in full, like in full, because we don't want to cherry pick our favorite parts. We don't want to cherry pick what's easy and skip the difficult parts. And so as a matter of fact, when we pick up next week in chapter 9, it's, it's another one of these difficult sections that's often skipped. Um, so we want us to have a right foundation of momentum coming into it. So again, that's why today we're reviewing Romans chapter 1 through 8, which, by the way, this is 29 sermons that we're going to try to review today in 22 minutes. Um, so, uh, so there you have that. Uh, so let's just start where Paul starts. Um, after his introduction, the entire theme of Romans is laid out in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he, said, he sees the statements that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So just real quickly, when we think about what the gospel is, we probably know it has something to do with Jesus. Maybe you don't know the word gospel means good news. And so what we're saying is I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus. So what is the good news of Jesus, right? Is that, so what we know is that God created all things. He created all things good and holy and for his holy purpose. But when Adam and Eve, when, when first Man sinned, we all sinned, and we all took on that, that sinfulness, and all relationship was fractured, and all purpose was marred. So all relationship between mankind and God, mankind and one another, mankind and creation, all of that was fractured. All of that was severed. And from that moment, there's just been this great need and conflict for restoration. Every conflict we feel is the groaning and the straining and the yearning of, of that being restored because that is what it was meant to be. It's, it's the, the, the actual, like just the wiring of how creation was meant to be has been just all messed up and short-circuited and it just isn't right until it's reconnected. That's, that's where we're at and we see that futility entered in. Futility for us to find our way into God's presence. Futility for us to find satisfaction in our work, which work was good before the fall. By the way, you remember that work is not just a part of the fall. Like Work was part of what we were given. We were given to cultivate the earth. We were given to care for it. We were given to steward it. All for God's glory as we live out his image. And so we see that the relationship was severed. Futility entered in. And this, there, was, there was a needed work of restoration, restoration of our image of what we were created for as we were created, reconnection of relationship and reestablishment of our position in the kingdom of God. Jesus accomplishes all of that work. That's the good news. It is not just ask Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven. That's the good news, that all of that is restored, all of that is reestablished, all of that is reconnected. It results in a future incorruptible hope but it also results in a present peace, hope, and reassurance. So when we think about kind of the, the, the thesis, this theme of all of Romans, we can kind of summarize it in this, that the righteousness, which is the full good character of God, is the righteousness is revealed in the salvation that comes only in Jesus Christ and results in a transformed, transforming life. So that's, that's, what, that's like the, the drawing back of the bow of Romans. And that's why as we, as we let it go, that's what we're flying through. So if the gospel's good news, there has to be bad news, right? There's only good news if there's bad news. Otherwise, it's just news, right? And so, and, and just to be clear, like God didn't create bad news so that he could have good news. There is good news because there's bad news because sin entered the world. Is, it, is that clear? So... For there to be good news, there has to be bad news. This is the, so we can, so then following this train of thought through here, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We see um, that verses sixteen and seventeen kind of lay out what we what we see the structure of Romans, and so verse sixteen tells us that the sal the, the, the salvation is for everyone that believes, and that there is no partiality for any reason. 
So that also means three things. So if we see that salvation is for all those who believe and there's no partiality for any reasons, there's some, the, the three things that have to come from that is that you must believe to experience this salvation. Also, those who do not believe do not experience this salvation. And this applies to everyone. Again, think of our two categories, Jews and Gentiles. That's everyone. Everyone is accountable to the law of God because the law is not just a code, but is the instruction. Again, it's the way, it's the wiring. It is the way that it was meant to be and is and will be in God's will and design. Is the expression of the very character and intent of our Creator God. So as we, as we think through what we've gone through, chapter, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, what we see here is just our great need of salvation. That is what this is laying out. That's why, and, and, and here's the deal, is that if we truly see that God is a righteous God, that he is always true, always just, then necessarily, because we are not, we experience wrath. There is wrath, and that is, that is being outside of God's will and way in his promise. God's wrath is often not a smiting wrath. It is much more of a removing the corralling of grace and leaving to your own sinful pursuits. Leaving us to that. And so when we see that verses, uh, chapter, one, chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, seeing that it's just calling us to our great need of salvation and, and what we see here, just some quick stepping stones for us to go through reading a few, couple of chunks of Romans. Romans 1, 18 through 23 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we're going to jump to Romans 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you? To repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are going storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we see that that God shows no partiality at all. All who believe, who confess Christ as the Messiah promised by God to restore all things, will be saved. All those who do not will not be saved, and all are accountable because God has made himself known to such an extent that every person will long and pursue to the point where they are accountable. So we see that here. And then Romans 2, 12 through 15, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So that's saying the people who have sinned, even though they haven't heard it, 
will perish without it, and those who have sinned that have heard it will be judged by it. So either way, you're still held accountable, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So he's saying that the, the, as, the, as, the, as the law has its power, as, as we live out the way of God unto him in Christ, we will actually, that bears out our proving of our salvation in him. It doesn't, our works don't save us, but it, it is us living out the way of God is what it's saying here. Again, go, go back through our archives to get a fuller view of this um, in our, on our website or on our podcast to look for Romans uh, 2, 12 through 15. Um, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So again, they, they show that they have that wired in them that God created them that way. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So again, uh, sorry that this is in such broad strokes, but what we see is that when we live, it is not whether we have the, the written law that the Jews live by or not is when we live out the law, the instruction, the, the, the design of God, uh, and we see that ultimately this is achieved. We are all measured by Christ. So this continues to unpack. Again, you have to read this all in one sitting. So the law does not save, but all are accountable to its standard is where we're at. Let's keep moving. Romans three nineteen through 20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So again, we're accountable to the law. The law exposes our sin, but only... Uh, but we are not redeemed and saved through it. So all are under the law because it is of God, and all are under God because he is the creator, and none have measured up. So that's where we're at. So, and, and if you were with us, we, we, we spent over a month in this kind of stuff, you know? And so it was a beautiful gut check every week, and we were, I was better for it. I hope we all were. But like we said, the bad news, bad news leads to good news. Romans 1.17 said that the righteousness of God was revealed for faith, by faith. So the section of 3.21 through 4.25 is all about the promise of salvation by Christ, by faith in Christ alone. So, so again, we, we, we laid out our bad news. Now we come to this beautiful good news that it is by Christ alone. The, the, the theological word for our salvation is justification, and that's because that is the working of it. For us to be saved is for us to actually be justified. And we see justified described in Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all, all have sinned. And in the Greek translation of all is all. It's everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over for uh, former sins. It was to show his righteousness and at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So we see 
our salvation is really justification. It is, it is a courtroom picture that we're standing before a judge and we are, we are guilty before him. And the only way that we can find reprieve is to actually be innocent. And because God is just, he is always, he is always just and a just judge does what? A just judge will always condemn the guilty and will always condemn, I mean, and always acquit the innocent. We'll always condemn the guilty and acquit the innocent. And so the only way that we can be redeemed is if we are actually made innocent, not just had our sins swept aside. And that is the beauty of the work of Christ. And what we see here is that the one who demanded justice, who we had sinned against and who we had denied his holiness, is actually the one who made us just by the sending of his son Jesus to take our punishment on the cross to take our penalty, our penalty and punishment, and to remove the power of sin, which we'll come to more in a minute. But what we see that we are justified, we are actually made innocent, and that is how we are saved, that Jesus takes our sin, our sin standing, and gives us his righteousness, gives us his right standing before God. We are actually innocent as if it had never happened because Jesus took it on. That is the beauty and the glory of this. That is the good news. So that's where we see the turn here. So yes, it's, it's horrible news. We have no hope. We can't get there on our own. But in God's love and his grace and in his justice, his justness, he made it right in Christ. In this way where it says he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This way he is just but he has also justified us. He took action to make us right. Marvel in that. In the rest of chapter 3, we see that salvation is by faith alone, as we saw in verse 20, as we see in verse 28, where it says, for, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this is the glorious flip side of God showing no partiality, right? So no partiality, no one is excluded. Salvation is for all who believe regardless of what you've done before, said before, believed before, haven't believed before, haven't done before, haven't said before. No partiality. All who believe, who trust Jesus will be saved. Chapter 4 illustrates this reality through, through the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham, and showing that even him, who was thought to be the most righteous, even his own salvation was by, his own righteousness was by faith and not by his acts. So we see that we need a Savior and cannot save ourselves. In fact, salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone as the one God re revealed his righteousness through. Romans 1.17 ends with saying, the righteous shall live by faith. This is not just saying those who call themselves Christians will set out to live a certain way of life, although it certainly does result in that, hopefully. It does, hopefully it does result in us willfully setting our way of life towards a Godward life, towards a life of honoring the one who created and saved us out of great love and affection and just obedience. But it's more than that. It is saying there will be a way of life manifested because of the work completed in them through their faith in Jesus Christ. We're talking about identity. You're given a new name. You're giving a new will. You're, you're given a new, the Holy Spirit is in you now, inclining your will to him. And so, again, we are much more living out who we are. And the instruction of God is not so much, is not that we could achieve, but that we could uh, live out 
that identity. So Romans 5, 1 through 8, 39 is just this, this beautiful picture of the great assurance of hope in our salvation. When I read the, this, this passage, this section of Scripture, I see the most clear picture of the loving, shepherding heart of God. A while back, my, my son was having a bad night. And, and probably the majority of nights, our, our kids are pushing boundaries about kind of like how they can stay out of bed. And, and they know there's certain things we can't say no to because this time it might be true. Like, I got to go to the bathroom. Like, you, you just, that's like a trump card. It's like, because the one time you, like, enforce it, they're, they're just going to go all over the bed. So we've been having one of those nights, and, and, and I'll tell you, like, in my flesh, I'm, I have a very entitled view of my time after they go down. That's my time. And oftentimes when they infringe on my time, I respond in a way that is saying, this is my time down here. It's their time up there. Anybody know what that's from? Anyway, that's Goonies. Um, but I feel that way quite often. This was just one of those nights, and, and Gavin, he, he had used every trick in the book to not go to bed. And we kind of get through all that, and now I think we're done, but now he's scared. He's scared, and he's, he's afraid, and he's upset. And I, in my frustration, I go in, and I'm like, just stop. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's, you know there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing. Just stop. And my, my answer to him when he says I'm scared is, well, stop being scared. Just stop. Just stop being scared. And it, and it is only making him more unsettled. It's only making him more uncomfortable. And finally, like, I mean, just, and I know this was of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just kind of just very gently just, just whispers in my ear. And he's like, is this the way that God the Father parents you? He said, how do I shepherd you? And man, I mean, oh, talk about being humbled. And talk about also all of a sudden seeing a great opportunity. I was humbled and broken, but I was encouraged. And I shifted gears, and I asked him. I asked my son, I said, what are you afraid of? And he, and he told me what he was afraid of. He was afraid there were people outside of his window. He was afraid there were people that were going to come in. There's people. And so I was like, man, how does God shepherd me? And so I started asking him, questions about what is true and what is a lie and, and telling him what was truth. And it was, you know, hey, do mommy and daddy love you? Yeah, 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 you, you guys love me. Well, will, will mommy and daddy do everything we can do to protect you? Yeah, 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 you will, you will. Do we lie to you, son? No, you don't lie to, you don't lie to me. Have, have we told you that this house is safe? Yes, you have. Um, has God given us good neighbors that look out for each other? And Gavin's a great neighbor. When one of them was moving in, they were moving this really heavy piece of uh, art, like steel art. And Gavin was like, hey, Daddy, why aren't you helping them? So that's how I met my neighbor. And now my neighbor's forever a friend of Gavin. He talks about him all the time. And, and yes, he has given us good neighbors. And then Gavin does God love you more than mommy and daddy? Yeah, he does. Does he promise to care for you and protect you? Yes, yes, he does. So then let's think on what is true and, and not give space for what is not. 
And then I said, you know, can, can we pray for God to, you know, the, the, the promises to give us peace in our hearts and Jesus to, can we pray for this? And we, I mean, it was just the most beautiful, just sweet parenting moment. Like, and we prayed, and as I prayed, he just, you know, my, my boy that's becoming less, less kid and, and more just rambunctious, he just buries his head in my chest, which felt very familiar as I bury my head in God's in these moments. And we prayed, and as we prayed, I just felt the tension release. And then I laid him down while he was still awake, and he just went to sleep. That's what this section of Scripture is to me. When I read 5, 1 through 8, 39, I marvel at the depths and the extent of which God goes through this letter to root us as deeply as possible into his heart of love and resulting in a hope and assurance that he has given us. So our assurance comes from a few things. It comes from our access to grace through Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So our assurance comes from our access to grace through Jesus Christ. And we see this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit. One work of the Holy Spirit that he does is that he, he, he works in our hearts calling out the favor of God. How often do we just get wrecked with guilt? And how often do we think that we have to hide from God? And the Holy Spirit is there because God loves us. He gave us the Holy Spirit who did the work of pouring God's love into our hearts so that we would be reminded of his love and favor for us because of Jesus. He doesn't want us to forget. What a kindness. My, my daughter is amazing. I mean, just every 10 minutes, she just says, I love you, Daddy. Daddy, I love you. And she'll just go, Daddy. I mean, she's six. Daddy, I love you. And it's because she just wants me to remember. Like, she wants me to know that she loves me. And in case I forgot, like, hey, let me just tell you again. And like, and it's just such a beautiful little thing. Daddy, I, I love you, Dad, Dad. And every, every bit of it just communicates the same thing. I love you, Daddy, and I want you to know it. I'm not going to let you forget. And that is just the Holy Spirit reminding us of God's favor and love on us, regardless of what he, because again, it's not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. So our assurance comes from God not making us make ourselves acceptable, but that he makes us acceptable in Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows us his love, he shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.20-21, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So chapter 6 turns a corner to living out our righteousness and calls us to the absurdity of grace. The absurdity of the grace of God and the work he has done to give us a new identity. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin? Continue in sin so that grace may abound. And this is one, one of the things I, I've said quite often is if you have never asked this question, you, have still, you still have not grasped the extent of God's grace upon you in Christ. Because there is an absurdity to the grace of God. 
when we see all of a sudden, wait, our standing has nothing to do with what I do, but all of what Jesus has done. Well, well, then what's the point of doing anything? He says, so are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? The answer is by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, by no means. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. Because of what God has made you, the new identity, your new name, your new belonging, your new family, it doesn't make sense because of what has been done in you. And what we see here is that God is not against effort for our salvation. I mean, he is not, yeah, he's not against effort. He is only against earning. We are actually supposed to gloriously and lovingly and joyfully live out an efforted life for the glory of God. We are meant to. That's part, that's part of what continues through here. And it's what, really what we kind of work through through the rest of Romans. Jesus did it, and now we just live a life in Christ and unto Christ for the glory of his name. Romans 6.11 says, So you alone must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I just love that verse, and I wanted to make sure we touched on it, because it says, so I said you alone, so you also must. And what he is saying is that, hey, God already considers you this way. He already considers that you are dead to sin and alive in God. You are no longer under the guilt burden of sin. You are no longer in the state of death of sin. You are alive and free and redeemed in Christ. He said, I see, God says, I see you that way, but it is so important for you to see yourself that way. And so I just talk about identity and the matter of it. Like, you know, with, with such like a, a focus on kind of self-love and self-help in our, in our world today, like this is how it's beautiful and healthy when we see that we are who we are because of who Jesus is. And so we have to understand ourselves in those terms and we understand that it is not up to, up to us to make ourselves good, but Jesus has. And now we get to see ourselves as God always sees us. We can't remove ourselves from the family. We can't stop being a son and daughter. We can't stop being a co-heir with Christ because that's who God made us. I mean, let that sink in. It's beautiful. God sees you this way. Now you must. It is the key to you living in the peace of your freedom. I, there's a vernacular that I hear a lot. You've got to claim it. And I'm like, well, you've already been claimed. You know, it's that you've been claimed, so now just live in it or believe it or embrace it. I understand the sentiment, but I just think it's funny. Sin was once your identity. Now it's just an activity. Um, chapter 7 illustrates chapter 6. And it ends with the tension that comes from our experience of this battle between flesh and spirit where we trust what God says he's done for us in Christ and who God says we are and, and who we're now. And, and yet it runs into this reality that we still sin against him and still don't desire him all too often. And it kind of goes through this whole run of kind of starting with this, for, for I do not do what I want to do and I do everything that I hate. And again, it's because... As we've been redeemed, our motives have been redeemed and made new in Christ and the Holy Spirit's working. So that's what is natural to us now. That's what actually sits right with us now. But he's saying that, hey, I, 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 that's what I love, but I do what I hate. I still am selfish. I'm still prone to, to these strongholds in my life. I'm still prone to, to whatever that thing is. So we kind of come to this, this tension at the end of chapter 8. And Paul's last statement on our assurance of hope in Christ, focuses on the inward and the outward trials we face. 
Verse 1 speaks to our inward trials, the things about ourselves that often bring guilt and shame that leads to us forgetting what God has done in Christ. Romans 8.1, when we think about this, this run of I don't do what I'm supposed to do and I do what I'm not supposed to do and like I want to do it but I can't do it, I, I, it seems like it's a, it's like it happens so much, it just seems like a law to me. If you go back and read that section in Romans 7, he goes through all that, but then he comes back to this glorious truth. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again, he's just hammering home. See what I mean by that? He's just holding you in his chest, and he's just reminding you of what is true and what is not. Because we're no longer under the law, because we are no, no longer rebels and enemies of God, but instead we have the righteousness of God given to us in Christ, we cannot ever be anything but his again. And this is what God is telling us over and over again. We get to struggle well with joy and hope. Life, scripture never tells us trials will not come. All it ever tells us is there will be trials when they come, when they come, when you face trials of many kind, that is the one thing that is certain, but also what is certain is that we can endure with joy and hope because of this reality. We get to walk. I love how uh, Tyler um, phrased this the other, a couple of weeks ago when he was teaching. We get to walk with a limp, but not hang our heads as if we've been you know, defeated or too, or injured too badly. My, my, my stepdad fell out of a tree stand hunting in 1987, crushed his ankle, fractured his vertebrae and his pelvis, and because of that, went through 20 years of just pain and procedures and ultimately culminated with him having to have his leg amputated just below the knee a few years ago because of a bone infection. And you could look at that and see him walk with his prosthetic leg and a limp and think that, man, he lost the battle. Man, you should have just, just cut it off a long time ago. And he actually went through that process thinking I wasted so much time. But now what we see in his life and what is true is that instead there is a picture of perseverance and resiliency in God's faithfulness. Because God has taken every bit of destruction that came from that and all of the compounded things that came from that and have worked them for beauty in his life. And that is a great picture of our own sinfulness and our own battle of flesh is that we get to walk with a limp without our heads hanging low because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our hope and assurance are not circumstantial. They are anchored in Christ. Our assurance is also for the external trials. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Too often we define either God's goodness or our goodness by, 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 what, by what happens to us. And we see here that because we live in a fallen world and God is working and he's restoring all things, that the, that we can't define God or ourselves this way. Well, I must be horrible because this happened to me, or God can't be good because this happened. God created things good. He created things right and holy, but they're in the fall, in the fracture. It affected everything, but God is restoring all things in Christ. And so we see this constant call to assurance because the reality of what we live in and what we face. So I want to close with the last verses from chapter 8, but before I do, let's review. We're all in need of salvation because we have all come up, come up way short of God's standard. Way short. No one is exempt. No one can save themselves. We're not saved by our works or the keeping of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did. 
and his crawl on the cross and in his resurrection. Because our salvation is by faith in the completed work of Christ instead of ourselves, there's an incorruptible hope and assurance of our faith. Because Jesus has made us innocent and free, the result is a unique life lived unto God. Romans 8, 35-39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray that today you would see yourself in this way and that you would see God and the work he accomplished in Christ in this way. If you have never trusted God in his saving work in Jesus Christ, you can surrender in no hope today. If that's you, I want you to know I am here. Um, we have a few of other, I think all of our elders are here today. Um, raise your hands real quick just so they can have some. Yep. And then if you know anyone near you that, that is walking with Christ, please come talk and pray with us today. Um, pray that we would see the world this way as well. God is working to restore all things, and we his people are meant to be a part of that redeeming work. Let me pray. God, I thank you. And I thank you for your love and grace. Oh, Lord, let us be humbled, but also just let us be emboldened. Let us know truth. Let us listen to your heart. Let us remember that it is not up to us to make ourselves right. Jesus did that. Let us know that it is the work of Christ that results in a transformed life, but also a transforming life. So Lord, I pray that you would just continue to liberate our conscience, continue to incline our will and the desire and the activity of our lives, Lord, to, to honor you, Lord, to hold out this love and hope and grace to those around us, to have the same compassion that Jesus had that, that didn't just stop in his thoughts or in his emotions, but it moved him. I pray that we would have that same compassion. I pray that we would marvel at the absurdity of grace. Lord, that we would just come to this point of being blown away by your love shown. Or that we, the rebels, the ones who denied your holiness, the ones who sinned against you, you took that on. You entered in and made us worthy, made us acceptable. So, Lord, we love you. Continue to lead us, God. Give us unity as we see your heart for your church here in this letter to the church in Rome. Give us unity in Christ that surpasses the surfacey kind of boundaries that we separate by. Give us unity in the foundations of the faith of, of who Jesus is, what we were created for, or how we are meant to be. Well, let us walk with open hands and courageous hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.